So, I, I mean, I was able to look at it a little bit, the, the text, but, but here's, here's kind of where my thought process started, started this week. We were, at a, uh, we were at a conference last weekend, and we did, we did a little uh, a long luncheon, actually, before, and we were sitting in, in round tables discussing what our, what our hearts are for, uh, for our people um, as, as pastors. And I've got to tell you that uh, as, as a pastor, my greatest heart as a, what Ephesians would call, as an equipper, would not be that you would be, my greatest, my primary, would not be that you become more generous people, though I hope that's the result, okay? That's not what, what I'm going to focus on. My, my heart would not be that you become missionaries in your culture, though I hope that's the result. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to focus on that. Is this guy a missional guy? I am, but I really think this is how you get there. My, my heart is not that you, you come to church more often or participate more in our activities, though I think that might be the result. My heart for you as a pastor that I think will result in all of those things is that you will begin to addictively seek the face of God through Scripture and prayer. And I am convinced that if you seek, passionately seek the face of God in a relationship with God through the Scripture and prayer, everything else we aim for in the Christian life will happen. Now, I made the mistake at the conference last week suggesting that because that's you can't really write a book about that that's not deep to tell people to pray more and read more that's just i mean it's not doesn't sell books but i said that and and i had one guy who apparently was smarter than me had a couple more degrees than me said uh well i don't i don't know about that and i said okay explain because i was ready to be educated and he said well you remember the pharisees i said i do remember the pharisees have you read about them i didn't say that but i wanted to and he said, well, they, they prayed a lot and they read a lot and look what the result was. I said, okay, but I think their problem was not that they prayed or read too much. I think the problem was their reason behind it. See, Jesus even actually addresses this. This is some of the, the stuff us uneducated people can pull out of the text. Jesus actually says this. He says, yeah, you sought the scriptures, you read the scriptures, but you sought them for your own life. You didn't find me in them. And that's what they're supposed to point to. So it wasn't that they, they read the scriptures too much, it's they read it for the wrong reason. And they didn't search it for the right reason. Another point, the disciples ask Jesus, they say, hey, hey dude, would you teach us how to pray? Now, in a culture in which prayer was primary in which this is how they grew up, why in the world would they ask, Jesus, would you teach us to pray like you? Well, here's what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, oh, here's, here's the solution, just don't pray as much. He, I mean, if, you really, if we were to just stop and think about that, that's just a weird thing. We don't need to pray as much. But, you know, because Paul says pray without ceasing, but he probably didn't know either. Um, but if you just... Here's what he did. He said, okay, let me show you how to pray. Now, why would they ask him this? Because here, not because he prayed less, because he, they looked at the culture and they looked at the Pharisees and they saw they prayed all the time and they looked at Jesus and saw he prayed out of the, all the time, but they saw something very different as the result of the prayers. See, one person connected with the living God in the way he prayed and one person really just sought themselves out. And so Jesus goes on to explain, well, here's how you pray. And he just makes it a very theocentric, seek the face of God in how you pray. And so my heart for you, as one of the pastors here, is not that you will do all this other stuff more. 
but that you will addictively and passionately seek out a relationship with God through the text and through prayer. And so, but here's, here's, here's kind of the crisis, I think, in the church today. I think prayer and reading the Bible is one of the most neglected practices in the church today. I mean, we have people serve all the time, we have, and that's all good. And we have people, you know, they, they show up and they serve in the church all the time, and, and that's all good. But for some reason, prayer and the scripture seems to be so neglected today. It seems to be, like, like see, I really, honestly, this week, I did have a choice every morning I woke up. Do I seek to build a sermon, or, or do I just seek the face of God to find Jesus for today? I, I had to make a choice. And because of my time limit, I, I had to choose, I need to seek the face of God to find him today. And I'm going to hope he just meets me somewhere in the week and unfolds this, this sermon for me. And I think that's the most neglected thing. And I think there's several reasons for that. I think, number one, uh, I think one of the things is we just think we have to read so many scriptures. Like, you know, have you ever heard that you need to read the Bible in a year plan? Not that that's bad, but, you know, the problem with that is if you're like me and you do, uh, you always, you hit your alarm twice every morning and then you get up to run downstairs, you realize I got 15 minutes. And so I'm going to get as much Bible reading as I can. And I sit there and I read it and I think, awesome. I didn't, you know, whatever. I could tell my kids this tonight, but I didn't get anything. Okay, now it's time to go and live my real life. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever read the text before and thought, that's a great story that I could tell somebody and we could turn it into some avatar looking deal, but I don't know what that has to do with me. Anybody ever been there? And so here's, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to help me write the sermon today. I know you woke up thinking, I'm going to write a sermon today. And the way we're going to do it, I'd probably get kicked out of seminary for doing this because it's not how they would do it, but it's how I do it. Um, but, but what we, I want to do is I just want to take this text. And I, I was able, I did have some time last night to look at some cross-references so we don't have to spend a whole week doing this. We can just spend about two hours to do this. And I'm teasing. We'll, we'll get done in time. Um, and we'll just begin to unpack this and walk through what's really going on in this text because I think the book of Acts specifically and the Old Testament, for most of us, those are really hard reads because they're narrative, they're stories. And what we like as Western Americans to get it done, we want to look for the propositional truths. We want to look for the do's and don'ts because at least I can extract that, put it in my life and go. But I think there's a reason that the majority of the text is not that. Because I think God wants us to pause a little bit and say, I don't have to accomplish so much reading. I want to meditate on what he's given me and let him speak to me and engage me through this so I can see him. Okay? And I think the text we're reading today is a good example. In fact, let's just, let's just read through it. Starting in Acts 8. I think it's going to be, I'm hoping it's going to be on the board. Uh, Acts 8, tw- starting in 26. Okay, we're just going to read through this because it's kind of long, so we're not going to dissect it verse by verse, but I I think you'll see the point. Um, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, she's the queen of Ethiopia, who was in charge of all her treasure. So he had some... Had some money with him. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, 
how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Aztos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Syria. Now, here's, here's the problem with this text. If this is in your daily reading, and you sat down to read this, and you've already slept in a little too much, and you're supposed to get something from this text, this is, this is what I'm getting. There is a dude who is confronted with an angel, right? This angel appears, poof, says, go. And when you go, there is going to be the Holy Spirit there handing off a message to you. And at that point, the Holy Spirit is going to point out someone specific. And you're going to sit there and wait. And you're going to pick off this chariot. Right? You can run up to it. Can anybody relate to that? I can't. I've never had an angel come to me and say, hey, go there. It'd be cool, and I would go, because it'd freak me out. But I've never had that happen. So, so far, me and the text are doing this. And then when I arrive, the Holy Spirit, kind of like you had a baton handed off to him, says, hey, that dude right there. Anybody? I, I mean, I've had some feelings about people, but I've never had it that clear. So now here's me in the text some more. And, and it's not like the guy was sitting on a bench. He was riding in a chariot. So he has to go to his gift list and say, am I gifted in picking off chariots? Okay, maybe. And so he takes off running, picks off the chariot, and he's running next to him asking, what you reading there? And it just so happens he's reading from the book of Isaiah. Anybody ever go to tell somebody about Christ and they just so happen to have the Bible open and they're saying, oh, I wonder what this means. No, usually it's a porn addiction. I'm thinking about leaving my wife. Um, it's some agnostic argument. But I've never ran up on anybody that an angel appeared to me, points me to the Holy Spirit, gives me the ability to pick off a chariot who happens to be reading the Bible. I mean, this guy's being pitched right down the middle. He's hitting them all. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Right? But this is what I'm getting from the text when I got 20 minutes. And so he gets up there and he explains it to him. And then, then, then Philip doesn't even have to initiate. They just so happen to cross a, a puddle of water. And just so happen, it just happens to be there. And when you study this historically, what you find out, that's kind of rare in this area. Just so happens to pass a body of water. And the Ethiopian says, I got a good idea. Why don't I get baptized? Really? 
And so they get off, they, he dunks him and flies away. Good story that's going to speak to me today, I'm out. Yeah. Well, this is what the narrative is. I mean, this is what's going on. But, but here's, what, here's, here's my problem with that. Is let's go to 2 Timothy. This will get there before I do, I'm sure. No, that's 2 Timothy. That's not it either. We got 2 Timothy up here. Yeah, let's, I'll just go with this if that's okay. All Scripture. See that word all? Now, here's what's, here's, this is what I mean by really smart people. I'm, I'm reading this book. And the guy took six pages to explain that the word all means all. Yeah. All scripture, now to be fair, the word scripture is grapha, and it's really referring to the Old Testament. But we know Paul says, and Peter says, that what they write is scripture. So this is applicable to all. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So I should be able to teach the text. For reproof, should be able to get on to you for it. For correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God, who's that? That's us. May be competent. This is supposed to make me more competent, right? Equipped for every good work of all scripture. So this scripture about the avatar-looking angel who floats down, tells him to go. He's intercepted by the Holy Spirit, picks off a chariot who happens to be reading the book of Isaiah which never happens in the real world. He does a little witnessing. The guy gets saved, dunked, and he flies away. That is supposed to be applicable to me. So, but it is because the Bible says it is. So what I want to start doing, and this is, this is my challenge to you. How, when we read texts like this, and this is why I just want to walk through this with you. So when you run into texts like this, you can, here's the thing. We have no commentaries up here. We have, we have the text. The, 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 the reformer said that scripture interprets scripture. So we're not, we're not going to do some fancy thing. We're just going to, and I've had the chance to look at the cross references, so it might take you a week to go through this. But I'm telling you, it'd be better to take a week to go through this text and get life out of it than just check the box because you read it and move on to the next story. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of walk through how I personally would have written a sermon about this. Okay, now, now, now the thing that really, so the first thing I, I want to do is I kind of want to peel back the things that, get in the way of relating. Not because they're not necessary, they are necessary. But, but they stand in the way of me kind of, does that make sense? Kind of, I want to peel that back. And so the first thing that kind of gets, gets in the way for me personally is some angel dude pops down and the Holy Spirit at the same time and gives this guy the ability to do what he's going to do. I, I've never had that happen. Maybe God's saying, okay, you just need to wait because an angel's going to drop down, but that's normally not the case. So I'm going to peel that back, and the first thing I'm going to try to do is figure out what's going on. Why was it necessary? After Jesus already gave the command, go be my witness, go into all the world, go make disciples. We already know we're supposed to do that. Why is it necessary to have a story in which the angel of the Lord and the Holy Spirit are tag-teaming on this dude? What's, well, to, to remove all the fluff, if you've read through the Old Testament, do you all know who the, who the main messenger was throughout the Old Testament? Anybody want to take a shot at this? The angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, do you all know who the main uh, minister is of Jesus? Who does Jesus say he's going to send? The Holy Spirit. Whoa. Now we got something else here than just an 
uh, just kind of a weird angel or, or the Holy Spirit just happens to be here. But it, it, it's almost like all the prophecies from the Old Testament are being shown through this angel that it's being interwoven, that the Old Testament is not over. Are, are you with me? But they're starting to weave in with something else. There is prophecy being fulfilled here. Okay? And when you read back through the text, there are a lot of prophecies about what's going to happen to the Ethiopians. Okay? Now, guess how, guess how that applies to my life? Other than it proves that prophecy is happening and it makes it foundational, not much else. But it lets me know this thing is legit. It's not just some story. But what's happening is the coming together of the old and the new, and it's becoming one, not separate. And Jesus is going to do, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to do what he has been promising to do, and we see it starting to wind together. So I'm going to peel that back. Okay? You see how we did that? Now, I did it really quick, but... But those are some weird things, so I kind of want to look them up and see what's going on. Okay, next thing I want to ask, so if you're, if you're studying the Bible and you're in a narrative, the next thing I want to ask is, who's the major player here? Anybody? Who, who, who's the, who's, who's the, the, the center of this text about? Okay. Anybody else? There we go. Now, but here, here, here's, why this is, here's why this is important. Because here's how we're going to do one or two things. We're going to either, A, look at the Ethiopian and say it's about the Ethiopian. Which secondarily it is. Okay? And, and it's, it's, or we're going to look at Philip and say it's about Philip. And what do we do when we say it's about Philip? We kind of tie us to him. Right? Now, all of a sudden the text just became man-centric. And I can no longer relate to what Philip did. But when the text is about Christ primarily and everything points to it, and here's, here's, here's how we know it's about Christ. Because when Philip gets up there with the Ethiopian, what does he use the text to do? Point him to who? Christ, right? But, but also, it actually puts me, when Christ is center, it actually puts me in the place of the Ethiopian, even though I'm a good moral Christian boy. Because, see, if everything in the... Old Testament points back, or Old Testament points to Christ, and everything in the New Testament points back to Christ. Then I can assume that this text is about Christ. See, because here's here's the deal. Not only does Philip point him to Christ, but aren't I? Aren't you the Ethiopian seeking on a road that you don't understand what's going on, and Christ comes to our road, and He points us to Him through the pain in our lives. I mean, isn't that what he did? Isn't that what the cross is about? He came to us. He found us wandering. He found us seeking. So it's, it's a prototype of the good and perfect Christ. So, okay, so it's, not, it's, not a, so it, it's primarily about Christ. And really, before he enters my life, I'm the Ethiopian. You're the Ethiopian. Seeking through life. Wondering what this stuff is all about. Have I confused everybody now? Okay, so here, so here we go. We've got prophecy being fulfilled. You're not, the canon's closed. You're not really going to fulfill that stuff. So it applies because it makes it real. But outside of that, Christ is the center. And it makes me approach this text humbly because now I'm the Ethiopian seeking. But now let's go to another plane. Now, who are our two main characters in this? It's not a trick question. You don't have to guess Christ. But here's what, here's what I want to tell you. Here's what I want to tell you. 
don't, don't, if that's all you get, that Christ is always the main point, not the church, not the people, but Christ. Here's what I want, if that's all you get today, which is likely, good. But don't go to the text and say, okay, I know it's about Christ, let's see where I'm going. Find him, like where's Waldo? Find him. Take your time to find him there, okay? But now we've peeled that layer back. Who are our main players? Philip and the Ethiopian. Those are our main players, right? So I, now I'm going to ask my next, my next question. Who's Philip? Who's Philip? I've got no commentary, okay? And if you've been here in the last four or five weeks, you know what you found out? You have found out that Philip is part of the original seven deacons that was chosen for acts of service. Okay, and as we continue to read in Acts, if, so this is what I normally would do. I'd stop and like, okay, Philip, well, who's Philip? And I'm going to go start looking. I'm going to cross-reference Philip. I want to find out who the heck Philip is and see what's so special about Philip. Well, here's what I find as I weave through the scriptures. By the time I get to Acts 21, Philip, yeah, they call him Philip the Evangelist. He lives in Caesarea, so obviously he kind of settled down after he flew there. Um, he's a guy who lives in the city, and he has four daughters. Ooh, what's so deep about that? Nothing. It means he's just a normal dude. That's it. It doesn't say Philip, the son of so-and-so, and the son of so-and-so to give him prestige. It doesn't say Philip trained in the way of whoever. He's just Philip, who lives in a city and has four daughters, who prophesy. So it happened before the Reformation. But whatever. Some of you didn't get that. That's okay. Um, but he's just a normal dude. That's all he is. Can anybody relate to a normal guy? Normal person? No, I, I, now all of a sudden I can relate. Can't relate to the flyer. But some dude who lives in a city who's got kids, I can relate. And now all of a sudden I can't use some of the excuses I want to use. Like I got family time, I got this, I got... Because that's who Philip is. See now, if there's anything deep about Philip, this is it. Philip is just a normal guy who looks at the commands of God as only worthy, as the only response worthy is immediate obedience. It's the only difference. He's just a normal dude who when he hears the commands of God, he thinks they are only worthy, the only worthy response is immediate obedience. Now that's kind of different. Because when I read the commands of God, I kind of like, you know, that's a pretty good suggestion. And when my life clears up here, That'd be a good idea. Or I kind of want to talk to God about it. You ever done that? That's a good idea, God, but you see, I got this going on, and if I could do this for right now, that'd be easier. See, I, but see, that's not Philip. That's the only thing that makes Philip different than me, is that he actually responds to the commands of God with immediate obedience. So now, now, now here I was to the text, and I'm, I'm getting a little closer. You see how we did that? We just, we just had to ask who he was. And so we, we took a little time. Instead of trying to accomplish so much, we just took some time to figure out who he was. Now, the next question is, since the next major player is the Ethiopian, who's the Ethiopian? Well, since prophecy is being fulfilled, and it wasn't good enough to just say a guy or his name, but an Ethiopian eunuch, I might think there's something tied to that. Right? Okay? And so I've got to, I've got to ask myself, who the Ethiopian eunuch is. And so far from the text, here's what I've found. He's Ethiopian. He's probably a Gentile. He's gone from Ethiopia to worship. But because he's a Gentile, here's what we know about the Old Testament. He was not allowed to really belong. He could kind of belong because of who he was, but not really. 
He couldn't really enter the courts of the presence of God. So, in other words, wait a second, in other words, he's kind of a rejected guy. He kind of lives in the shadow of not really belonging, like something from his past or because of who he is makes him not acceptable. Anybody know someone like that? Uh Uh-oh. And and then we can just add to this. This is is hypothetical, but it makes it nice. If we know the route, which I had to do a little bit of work for this, but but see, this doesn't really add, add much, so it's just for free. But if we know the route from Ethiopia where the queen lived to where the temple is, what we know is it was not an easy journey. So this guy who really is interested, who is really seeking, wants to know more about this God of Israel who he'll never really belong to because he's never really going to be like them because some things have happened in the past that he just can't change, thinks that maybe I can, I obviously believes he can't worship him where he's at, he can't love him right where he's at, so now I've got to do some works to get there just to be reminded one more time that I don't belong. But he didn't just say he's an Ethiopian, it says he's a eunuch also. I thought about bringing a flannel graph, but I thought that would be a good idea. Okay, there's, there's a couple words that, that Ethiopian or eunuch can mean. One of those being, let me go, let me go back to the text here. Uh, verse 27, let's see here. Uh, eunuch, one of the actual uh, translations for the word eunuch is that he is someone in charge of the treasury. But it says that. So either we've got some serious redundance going on or he's actually a eunuch. Now, since you... You might not have ever studied that out. You would just assume he's what? A eunuch, right? Which is, again, for us average people, it's the smarter assumption because that's what's going on. So here's the other thing. Anybody got the NIV? I want to I give the PG-13 version of this. You got the NIV? Can you look up Deuteronomy? Let me find it here. Deuteronomy 23. I've got the ESV if you guys want the version. NIV. Oh, sorry. Verse 1. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Is that okay? Yeah, what's a eunuch? He's someone who's been emasculated. ESV gives the risque version. But uh, it, it um, yeah, what, what's a eunuch? It's someone who's been emasculated by cutting or crushing. So now he's got a double negative against him. Not only is the fact that he was born a certain way making him feel like someone who doesn't belong, someone who has to work really hard to be loved by this God, but now he's a eunuch also. And it's not like, you know, they had surgery back then. You can't put anything back on. I mean, he's, it's just who he is. And he's one more reminder that he's never going to belong. He's never going to be good enough. Anybody know anybody like that? If your answer is no, do me a favor. Here's your homework assignment. After you leave, go to your next door neighbor if they're not a Christian, knock on the door, introduce yourself, then you can come back and tell me, I've met somebody like that. Because, see, we're all seeking. And at some level, we all feel like for some reason in our past, something I've done, who I was born with, or whatever, I don't really belong. Well, now I can, I can relate. I can really relate to what's going on. But he caught up with the chariot, and he's reading Isaiah. He's reading the Bible. That's, that's what we want to do. But, but it says he began. It says he began with this verse and began to explain to him the greatness of who Jesus was. Now, I don't think it's coincidence that, because what he's reading is Isaiah 53. 
here. So he's trying to figure out who this God is, right? He doesn't know what's going on. But isn't the good news, isn't the good news not just Jesus saying, hey, look, I died for you. Isn't it really good news to your situation on that which you thought was holding you back? Isn't that what the good news is? Is when it's spoken into that situation and says, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of what I've done, you have been accepted. Isn't that what makes it good news? Does that, does that make sense? It's not just a random fact but it's the fact that it speaks into every situation of our life and says what you've done or who you are doesn't matter. What matters is who I am and what I've done for you. That's good news. So what, what has he done? Well, here's, here's something that I, I can assume just because of who I am, not some great person, but just because of the way I think, that if in Isaiah 53, I'm reading and I find this this person who is going to do this and was really I can relate because if you think about what does it say in 53 he, he was a rejected person too right so you can kind of relate to this Jesus so if I'm getting kind of excited that this is who God is you know what I might do since since especially Philip started there I'm going to continue to read I want to I want to know more about this guy can we go to Isaiah 56 which he had the scroll so we, he went there thus says the Lord keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Next. Let not the foreigner, who was he? Foreigner, who, says, who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the, who, what's that word? Who was he? It just so happened to be in the text that he was reading. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Here's, Here's what Philip did to the man who was rejected. He took the very thing that separated him from the community of Christ and he spoke the good news into it. And he says, it doesn't matter what has happened to you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you were born. What matters is the promise to you because of who he is. Now, I can relate better because you know what I can do? I can speak the good news of Christ into a divorce situation, into a pornography situation, into any situation that happens. I can speak what Jesus has done for that person because of the cross. So what do we have so far? We just have a normal dude who took the commands of God as literal, only worthy of immediate obedience, who happened to be on another road with a guy who felt completely separated, rejected, and dejected from the community of Christ. And he took his crisis and spoke the gospel into it. And then it says that the next thing happened, that he was baptized. Now, why is that significant? There's two reasons. Number one, Alan Hirsch said this last week. He said, your baptism is your commission. When you study the church history of Ethiopia, the guy really believed that. Not seminary, not a few years of training, but once you've been baptized, you've been sent. But, but here's the other thing. Baptism also marked your entrance into the family, into the community. 
you were one of them. The Ethiopian had spent his life realizing that he would never be one of them. Of course, he's going to ask, can't I do this? And of course, when he does it, he walks away rejoicing. So here's what we have. We just have a man, a normal dude like you and me, who actually took the commands of God to be literal, to be something only worthy of immediate obedience to a man who felt completely rejected like he would never be part of. And not only did he give him the gospel, but he accepted him in his family. Anybody, can, can anybody see how this might be relevant to your life? How that this might be the imperative that Christ is speaking to us in the morning when we get up and we turn to these pages? You, you see that? We took this big crazy story and we just brought it down to Maybe I'm supposed to be the normal dude who takes the commands of God so literal that I see them as something only worthy of immediate obedience to my neighbors who feel rejected and dejected and speak the gospel into the pain of their life and then welcome them in as part of us. Can anybody relate to that now? Yeah, I need to do that. I think that's the command. I mean, didn't Jesus say somewhere, go? But here's, here's, here's kind of where, where my argument flies up sometimes. Like, yeah, but I, you know, okay, so that's cool. So I'm just going to wait for the Holy Spirit to nudge me in the right direction. Let me read another story for you, and then we'll, we'll bring this to a close. Because haven't you ever felt that way? God, if you want me to meet this person, have you ever felt that? Because it's kind of uncomfortable sometimes. Would you just do, do the fleece thing? Remember, if you just do this, if you speak to me, if you make them come to me, then, okay. Second uh, Peter 16, it's up here. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. You guys see what's going on? He's telling his church, hey guys, remember the story where I'm up on the mountain and Jesus does his deal and the two dead dudes pop down and they, you know, I was there. I didn't hear about it. I was there. I saw it all happen. Freaked me out, but I was, I was there. Goes on. That, that, would, that would be important to me, right? I, I think that I could base a lot of my decisions in my life on that. Goes on. And we have something more sure. Time out, freak. We got something more sure than you being on the mountain with Jesus, two dead dudes popped down, and we have something more real and more sure than that? The prophetic word. What? That's the scripture. The scripture is more real than any experience, any angel dropping down and says, go do this. The scripture... The Bible is more real, more legit than any experience, fleece, or whatever you want to call it is. Well, let's, to end this, let's, let's see what the Bible says. Let's go back to Acts 17. Since it's more real, it just told us we don't need an angel or an experience to go be that average guy to the person who's hurting and insert the gospel into their pain. We don't, need, we don't need an angel to do that. So let's jump over to Acts 17 and see what the Bible says. Acts 17, 24. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, here it comes, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, that he is actually not far from them, from each one of us. So what is this, which is more real than any experience, some angel dropping down of heaven, what does that just tell us? That you live where you live, you work where you work, not because you're smart enough, good enough, or got fired enough, but because God already planned it before you even thought it. What does that say about all the people who live around you who are not Christians? What does that say about all the people who work around you who are not Christians? That God put them there so that they will find him through you. So what is the text? Because it's more real than some angel dropping down, which kind of makes me want to separate from the text. What's the point? I'll say it one more time. It's about a bunch of average people who take the word of God as so literal that its only response should be one of immediate obedience to a world that is seeking, that feels dejected and feels rejected with the gospel of Jesus Christ to the pain in their lives. Let's pray.